Well, if you were not here last night, you missed a, a great opening message from our keynote speaker, uh, Bruce Clark. And uh, last night he was talking about embracing the good news. Today he's going to be talking about embodying that good news uh, here in just a few moments. And I gave a quite extensive, and matter of fact, in this um, uh, bulletin, there's a long bio about a lot about Bruce's background. I did that last night. I read through most of that. I'm not going to do it now. I'm just going to tell you, Bruce Clark and Sarah and their family, uh, they were members here. Uh, Bruce was an elder and a deacon here, or deacon first and then an elder, uh, and was on the pulpit committee that called me here. So like I said last night, uh, if you're not happy about that, uh, Bruce is one-seventh to blame. And uh, so, uh, but we, uh, they left here in 2000, uh, late 2005, and um, uh, went to, to go to start uh, pursuing a career in uh, ministry and uh, Covenant Seminary. I ultimately ended up over in Cambridge, and I uh, got to visit them once when I was over there and uh, uh, in a nice uh, pub for some good fish and chips and so forth. And then many years later, I hadn't seen Sarah since then, and uh, here we get to have them now as our uh, keynote, Bruce is our keynote speaker for this Missions Emphasis Weekend. And so uh, Bruce shared some of that uh, along with other ministries we support in the Sunday School Hour. And by the way, if you missed last night, this message will be online at fpcniceville.org, uh, the sermon's there, so you can pick up if you missed that. But Bruce, brother, welcome uh, back home. And would you come and bring God's word to us? By the way, Bruce is the pastor of Good Shepherd in uh, St. Louis area. And if he wants to say anything more, I'm going to let him say that. Thanks a lot, Joe. Appreciate it. Thank you. Well, good morning. It's a joy to have uh, to be there this morning. I want to thank all of you. On behalf of my family, uh, you, you all have put us up very kindly over in Destin. We had a, a wonderful day to, uh, together as a family yesterday in the sun the beach, it was beautiful. So uh, thank you so much for your kindness. And it's a joy to be here this morning. If you would like to uh, follow along in your Bibles, you can turn to Luke chapter 10. If I remember right, in your pew Bible there, it's uh, page 686, or I'm sorry, 868, I believe. Uh, last night we talked about the idea of embracing the good news. This morning I want to talk to you a little bit about embodying the good news. And I want to talk about that idea of embodying the good news in a specific context. That is a context that we might call hardened. All of us know people who are stubborn and who are difficult. And that's not only true of individual persons, it can be true of communities. Maybe think of, our, of American history, we can think of the Jim, the Jim Crow South. I think of the, hearted, the hard-heartedness, the stubbornness of communities, the cultural sins that we have. Though many of you may have lived here in this area, Niceville and Okaloosa County for a long time, and you know perhaps the challenges that this community is facing. And my question this morning, the question that really Jesus puts before us is how do you bring real change to a hurting community? How do you bring real change to a hardened community? If you were to ask many people in our world today, in our Western world, if you were to ask the talking heads on TV, what, what answer would they give? How do you help let's say, a community that's hardened by racism? How do you help a community that's hardened by various social and political divides? I think most people would say today they would use, they would think of education. Oh, well, the solution is to educate people. The problem is they don't know enough. But listen, listen to what some of the leaders of the civil rights movement 
and from the 1950s and 60s. Listen to what they said they had to say about education. This is one historian, historian summarizing their thinking. He says this, quote, The thinkers who were active in the black movement of the 40s, 50s, and 60s believe that the natural tendency of all human institutions, like education, is toward corruption. Like the Hebrew prophets of old, these thinkers believed that they could not expect those institutions like education to improve. Hardened cultures, hardened communities would use, would only use education to rationalize their iniquity. In fact, that's true. You can look at the history of the 20th century and a lot of the academic world, the first half of the 20th century, many of our, our quote-unquote finest scholars use their academic knowledge to actually reinforce and confirm racial, uh, uh, racial preferences, racial superiority. It's astonishing to think, to think the 20s, the 30s, the 40s, and even, even in the 60s, that you had persons with high degrees in America actually commending the superiority of white persons. The point being, a hardened community will only hijack education. Education, at the end of the day, is not strong enough to overcome the stubbornness of the human heart. So again, we could ask, how do we bring change? I mean, real change to a hardened community if it's not going to be education? Well, maybe if it's not education, maybe we could say, wow, you know, as Christians, we, we believe in evangelization. Maybe it's conversion. It's conversion that will bring change to the hearts of, the, of those who are hardened. Is it that simple? Listen to the following story of evangelization by a man named Chris Stedman. Chris is a gay man in his 20s. He and his friends were out bar hopping in Chicago one evening. And he, this is what the story that he recalls. He says this, as my friends and I approached a gay bar one humid August evening, ready to dance and have party, we were confronted by several men with Bibles in hand who accused us of maintaining an alternative lifestyle. And they offered our offensive appearance as evidence of this. I thanked them for sharing their holy book with me, and I asked if they would like to explain why they had chosen to spend their Friday evening on this particular street corner. The missionaries informed me that they had recently given their lives to Jesus Christ and had been commissioned by their minister to recruit other believers. They had heard that this part of Chicago was heavily populated with homosexuals and decided to come here to spread their message of reformation and repentance to a population that they believed was in particular need of it. I told them of my years as a Christian and how immensely powerful they were for me. The love that I had experienced, the joy that I had found in communion with other believers, and the inspiration that the story of Jesus Christ had provided me. But I also illuminated the darker side of those years, my struggles with recognizing my sexual orientation and wrestling to reconcile it with the teachings of the tradition, the shame I felt over who I was, and the weight of what felt like living a double life. He continues, when I was finished, I noticed that a quiet had overtaken the group. And finally, one member spoke up with a gruff tone and eyes fixed on the cracked concrete beneath his feet. 
He thanked me for sharing my story with him and told me that he'd never, he'd never actually even known a homosexual. He hadn't thought what it might, to be, what it, what it might be like to experience intolerance for being gay. Now, let me ask you, is that evangelism? What is right about that story? What is, what is so wrong about that story? Will conversion, will mirror the proclamation of the gospel in some sort of removed, impersonal way actually bring change to a hardened community? What's missing in that picture? You know, last night we started talking about this, this beautiful story, this beautiful, these two, these two uh, passages from uh, Luke chapter 9 and 10. And we saw yesterday how Jesus began his final journey to Jerusalem. Luke says that Jesus was certain of his future reign. It says that Jesus started out, as his time came to be taken up, Jesus was certain of his future reign, and he set out for rejection in Jerusalem. It's a staggering thing, Jesus being so certain of his father's vindication that he headed straight for Jerusalem for his complete rejection. He knows he's going to lose. He knows he's going to fail. He knows it's all going to go wrong. Everything's going to go south in Jerusalem. It's not going to work out like his disciples had thought. Luke says, he shows us, and so Jesus says, he, he begins his journey, and he says to everyone, follow me. Follow me into being rejected by the world. Follow me by following the Father's plan forgetting your pride. We talked about that last night. And this morning in this text, Jesus chooses 72 or so of his followers to go on ahead into every town where he was about to go. Now these are not, this is really, this is what we want you to hear this, guys. These are not pagan towns, okay? These are not towns full, these are, these are actually towns full of people who are persuaded that they are in fact the people of God. They're people hardened by pride, pride in their own pedigree, pride in their own principles. They're like, they're like a southern, I'm just you know, caricature a little bit here. They're like a town in the south, a south, a small town in the south where everybody's a Christian, where we're all Christians, because we all go to church. And yet the hardness of heart, the coldness, betrays something very different. So Jesus instructs his followers on how to bring real change to these hardened communities. It's not through education. It's not through just somehow, you know, sharing the gospel, evangelizing in some sort of impersonal way. And because of the length of our passage here, I'm just going to actually, we're just gonna, I'm going I'm to read it as we go along here. So I'm just going to, so I'm going to just, let's jump in this way. So how does real change, how do, how do you bring real change, real flourishing to a hardened community? To answer that question, we've got to do some translation, translation work here. Judah of Jesus' day, obviously, is not Niceville or Okaloosa County of our own, right? So we want, to, we want to do some translation work here. But there's a lot we can learn. So real change in hardened communities happens when God's people first go out. When they go out, look at verse 1. After this, the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them on ahead of him. You have to go out. You actually have to be in the community. There has to be real exposure. You have to go out. You can't just stay in your own private little bubble. 
Jesus tells them to go out. In fact, he says to go out in pairs. That's so important. He says, go out in pairs. In other words, I can't bring real change on my own. Again, look at verse one. He says, he sends them out, how? Two by two into every town and place where he himself was about to go. Jesus tells them to go into these communities in pairs. He sends them out in pairs. Why does he do that? For two reasons. First, for strength in times of weakness. For strength and weakness. In fact, the Old Testament wisdom literature says this. Two are better than one because they have a good return for their labor. If one falls down, the other can help him up. Though one man may be overpowered, two can defend themselves. See, Jesus sends them out in pairs. He sends them out in community first for, the, for strength and weakness. But he also sends them out, listen to this, he sends them out for strength in their witness. For strength in their witness. The Old Testament law says only, only on the testimony of two or three witnesses is a person to be put to death. There's a sense in which two, and the, the, the testimony of two is actually stronger than one. It's a number of years ago, I was out, I was in, I was in Duke, uh, I was near, near Duke, uh, Duke University, and a friend of mine, we were in a bar and we were having a drink. And we were talking, and it just so, so happened uh, that a, uh, a guy who was sitting next to us, we started talking, and we actually got on the subject of Christianity. And he said, yeah, he said, you know, but only idiots would ever believe that someone rose from the dead. And my friend, who um, is actually a professor of classics at Duke, he said, you know, I'm a professor of classics at Duke, and I believe that Jesus rose from the dead. And it's just awkward pause. And the guy kind of backed and I said, yeah, actually, I do. I've got a degree from Cambridge University in the UK. I think Jesus rose from the dead, too. And the guy just started, started to backpedal. I said, you know, actually, almost three billion people in the world believe that Jesus rose from the dead. Maybe, I mean, this guy, I kind of went, he, he, was, from, he was from, was from a different university, local university. But I said, maybe it's, your, maybe it's your European white maleness that makes you think that people can't rise from the dead. What is it so hard to believe that someone really made the world that he could actually raise someone from the dead? See, there's, there's a strength in unity. There's a strength when there's more than one of us. And so Jesus sends us out in, prayer, out in pairs. Why? For the strength in our weakness, but also st- strength in our witness. What does this look like? It doesn't necessarily, let's not over, be over-literalistic about the text. Jesus is saying, go out together. Grab one of your fellow Christians and go to a yoga class weekly. Volunteer together in, the, in a community. Be a participant in a local sport. Have one of your kids involved in athletics. It's nothing better than to sit there as a parent on the side of the soccer field and you get to know some of the other parents. And you're there every single Tuesday evening and you talk and you engage and you're proactive. You ask about their life. You ask about what's going on in their marriage. You ask about their kids. You share about yourself. You get to know them. You're out there and look out. You're actually doing what Jesus says to do. At its best, going out in pairs looks like going out as a small group that finds regular ways to serve in its community. It looks like adopting a local school teacher, a public school teacher, because that's a hard job that pays nothing. You say, you know what, our small group, we just want to, like, bless you any way we can. We'll show up, we'll grade papers, we'll sharpen pencils, you name it, we'll do that. Because we're a small group, we want to see you flourish as a public school teacher. Watch and see what that, when you, if, you do, if you were to do this as a small group, watch and see what would happen. We've done it before. We've seen amazing things happen for it, happen through it. A simple way to go out in pairs, to go out together. It means that you found some way to be out there proactively listening and learning. See, I can't bring real change to a hardened community on my own. I can't do it. 
I need others for strength in my weakness. I need others for strength in my witness. So Jesus tells them first to go out and go out in pairs. But then he says, look at verse two. He says, go out with prayers. That is, we can't even bring real change on our own collectively. Verse two says, and he said to them, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. See, apparently, real change to hardened communities is itself a community effort. It's not about an elite few who get it. It's not about the key preacher, the key person, the key uh, ministry, the key church. It happens when we pray for God to to call and qualify laborers. Now listen to this, gang. I want you to hear this. This is so important. What God has asked us to do in the Great Commission. In fact, what he's asked us to do in living the Christian life. It's impossible. Does it ever feel hard to be a Christian? Like you can't obey at all? It's because you can't, right? Does it ever feel impossible? It's because it is impossible. But here's the thing. With God, all things are possible. We worship a God who's able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine. And when we realize, oh, this is impossible, oh, and God can do the impossible, the result is what? Prayer. It's prayer. It's God's people getting together to pray. Where there is no missional prayer, there will be no missional progress. So I'm asking you to think as a church, as small groups, as a session, as leadership, Are we engaged in regular kingdom missional prayer? And it's just so, you know, I so appreciated the other speakers in the Sunday school this morning. It was so beautiful to see Grace speak of her ministry to the single mothers in need. It's so beautiful to see Mike talk about how uh, the, the Christian school is seeking to minister to families in need. That is at the very heart of what is tearing our country apart. In fact, there's a wonderful book by the Harvard political scientist, Charles Murray. It's called Coming Apart. And he speaks of the challenges, that, the, the, the main challenge that is destroying and dividing our culture. And the very heart of it is the very things that those two ministries are working on. And, if, and, and it's amazing. Murray's not a Christian. I mean, he refers to a number of other Nobel uh, Prize winning uh, econ- economists. And he says, you know what? The only way, the only hope of div- overcoming the divide that is overwhelming our nation, he says, amazing. He says, you know what? We, we, we've, we've done the research and we've, we've looked back in American history. And there have been other times where America has been divided just so incredibly. And he says, and what has, America's over, overcome those divides in the past, and it's been on three different occasions, and all three different times that America's had major divides in its culture, he says there are these things that just rise up out of nowhere. We're not even sure what they are, but we know they're called great awakenings. These are non-Christians. This is a Harvard guy. I mean, Nobel Prize winning uh, economists, and they're saying, and they basically said, you know, we don't see much hope for America's challenges, but maybe we can have another great awakening. There's the non-Christians saying there's no, there, there is no rock like their God. And it comes, it starts by small groups, us going out in pairs as a congregation, as a community, getting out, going out in pairs, going out with prayers, to do something that's beautiful. And just as an aside, do you notice the metaphor Jesus uses? 
Look there. Do you see the metaphor he uses? To, he says, pray that God will send out workers into the garbage dump. Is that what he says? Is that how he describes non-Christian culture? Send them out into the desert. No, he says, no, pray there for workers to send them out into the harvest. See, Jesus sees beauty and blessing and bounty. I often look out in our culture and I just see, man, this guy's cynical. It's just, oh. And I see what is ugly. Not Jesus. See, to Jesus, humans are incredibly unworthy. They are unworthy. Jesus knows sin, okay? But he also knows that as unworthy as people are, they are still of great worth. And I'm telling you, if you don't have solid relationships with non-Christian friends, you're missing out. You're missing out. I hope you have non-Christian friends that you deeply respect, that you admire, that they have aspects to them that you, you miss. You say, I wish I could be like that. And yes, they have tragic flaws, but so do you, so do I. Jesus sees them as a harvest, as bounty, as beauty. So I can't bring real change to a hardened community on my own. In fact, we can't even do it on our own. We have to be sent out. We have to go out not only in pairs, not only with prayers. Look at verses three and four. Notice something that we are to go out without. This is where it gets scary. The third point here is go out without protection or provision. Did you hear that? Jesus calls us to go out without either protection or provision. Look at verse three. Go your way. Behold, I am sending you out. How? As lambs in the midst of wolves. That is to say, without protection. Carry no money bag, no knapsack, no sandals. That is to say, without provision. And greet no one on the road. This is of urgency. What? Wait, whoa, 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 whoa. What is Jesus? What did Jesus just say? Why would he send them out without protection or provision? I mean, seriously? Jesus' reasoning here is actually very simple, and it's very scandalous. See, risk reveals what we're really about. Let me say that again. Risk reveals what we're really about. I mean, who would go out without protection or provision? People who follow Jesus. Why? Because people, these people have real kingdom convictions who really care about their community and their culture and they're gonna go right into risk. They're gonna right into uncertainty, into situations where they're not in control anymore. That they may fail. (gasps) It may not happen like they think. See, without protection or provision, our principles are put to the test. Jesus is saying, go out, believing that opposition is opportunity, especially in the face of a hardened community. Where is your service to Jesus? Where in your service to Jesus is there risk? Where is there social and financial reliance on him? Faith promise is a great opportunity to do that. You go home and say, you know, sweetheart, I've been thinking we need to take some risks, some financial risks. This is a great opportunity to do. We know where the money's going. We know it's going to be used well. We want to give in a way that actually, we don't actually know when the rainy day hits, what's going to happen. And I tell you, gang, God has so provided for us as we pursued his plan, it's been hard, it's been scary, it's not all glorious, it's not all, it's not all amazing, it's hard. Making those decisions is difficult. 
Here's a key idea. Focus first on God's plan and not on your protection or your provision. I've seen too many gifted men and women stay careful, stay cautious, and they don't. God doesn't use them in the way that he could. He doesn't use them. Got it? So into this very hardened community, this very hardened culture, Jesus instructs them to go out in pairs, to go out with prayers without protection or provision, to do what? Look in verses five and six. They are to give peace, to give peace. That is, they are to give life and bring flourishing to give peace. Look at verses five and six. Whatever house you enter, first say peace to this house. And if a son of peace, that is to say someone who wants peace, who promotes peace is there, your peace shall rest upon him. But if not, it will return to you. Now, this is just truly amazing. I just, I, you know, I read the gospels and I think this is just so not what I would have written if I were making it up. I mean, think about it. Wouldn't it make more sense for Jesus to say, look, I'm not going to be around here forever. And uh, so just go out and bring the people and bring them to me. I'll preach three-point sermon. I'm going to perform some miracles, maybe an exorcism or two. And then boom, the change will come to these hardened communities. Wouldn't that make sense? I mean, Jesus is here. Invite him to preach. That's not what he says. It's not what he says at all. He says, go into their homes. You invest in them. You go into their lives. Get to know them. Isn't that amazing? Go into people's lives and be a life-giving presence. Some won't want it, fine, that's okay. But some will. You say, you know what? I'm going to go down to that wonderful ministry called Calm, and I'm going to go down there, I'm going to say, hey, is it possible to take one of these ladies out for lunch once a week? Take them out and get to know them. I'm going to pray with them. I'm going to pray for them. See what I can do. I'm going to listen to their story. I'm going to share my story with them. I'm going to share my sin with them. I'm going to share what I'm just going to have them pray for me. I'm going to get involved in their lives. That's what Jesus wants. That's what's going to bring the kingdom. So what exactly, what, is it, what, do you, what do you mean give peace? What does that look like? Jesus gets very beautifully practical here. Very briefly, he mentions just four things here. Okay, he mentions four things. He says, this is how you give peace. First, you, you do it by offering welcome. So beautiful. Remain, he says, verse seven, remain, stay in that house, eating and drinking what they provide. He says, you know, actually go into their house, get to know them. Have them over for hospitality. Have a sense of welcome. How do you bring peace? You welcome people. By being a pursuing, persevering, non-anxious presence. Here's the beauty of Young Life Ministry. Those of you who know Young young Life Ministry, it's so beautiful. Young Life workers, what do they do? They just go into the junior highs and high schools, and they're just present. They're just there. And they change so many young people's lives. They're not trying to, there's no agenda. They're just there to hang out, to be present. That's what Jesus said. Go in there and eat and drink with them. (gasps) What a strategy. So shocking. Have them into your home. Get to know them. So first, how do you bring peace? Offer welcome. Isn't that beautiful? The second way you offer peace is simply working with and for them. Jesus says the laborers deserves their wages. I just love some of the opportunities I saw again in Sunday school. Ways that you can go in and you can simply help people. You go to, you knock on the door, Rocky, buy you Christian. You say, hey, look, what do you guys need? What can I do? I got these gifts. I got these abilities, these talents. I don't know. Can you use those? 
and you get, once you get in people's lives to know them, you say, you just find out what their needs are and you begin to work with them and work for them. So first, you, offer, you give peace by offering welcome. You give peace by offering work. Third, you give, you give peace by offering wellness. Jesus goes on in verse 9 and says, heal the sick. Uh, that is to offer wellness. We can't heal anybody. We can certainly offer wellness. We can help people simply in their midst of their sickness. So there's offering of welcome. There's offering of work. There's offering of wellness. And finally, and this is important, verse 10, verse 11. There's an offering of warning. Let me read that, verse 10. But whenever you enter a town and they do not receive you, why? Because they're hardened or stubborn. Go into its streets and say, even the dust of your town that clings to your feet, we wipe off against you as a warning. Nevertheless, know this, that the kingdom of God has come near. But I tell you what, I don't know about you, but in my life, when people have spoken words of warning, I often in the moment will just push it away, but it sticks with me. And when you look at someone, you say, I'm concerned for you. My heart breaks for you. I think you're missing out. I think you're heading down the wrong path. And I think you were made for so much more. They may not like you, but they will remember that. They will remember that. See, some don't want peace. It's so hard in pastoral ministry. You're gonna love people and they just, they don't, they don't want us. They don't want it. They wanna walk off the cliff. They wanna self-destruct. They want it their way and not God's way. Okay, so into this hardened community, Jesus instructs them to go out in pairs. He goes and he tells them to go out with prayers without protection or provision to do what? To give peace. Isn't that beautiful? A peace. And it's in the midst as they are giving out peace that Jesus gives them two guarantees. Look there in verses 12 through 16. First, it's a guarantee of God's wrath on the stubborn. Why does Jesus talk about this? It's actually, you know, a lot of these, these towns, they're not going to listen to you and understand I'm going to take care of them. It's going to be better for Sodom and Gomorrah on that day than for these towns. Why does Jesus assure them of divine wrath? Why does he do that? See, when people reject you, when they hurt you, you what's, what's your temptation? I don't know about, my, about you, but my temptation is to push back. <laughs> Instead of get angry, right? And, and Jesus is saying, you know what? Your heavenly father, he's got that taken care of. The whole wrath thing, he'll do that for you. And so that means that if people reject you, what can you do? You can just show them mercy. See, God's sure wrath frees us to show sure mercy. Verse 16, whoever rejects you rejects me, but whoever rejects me rejects him who sent me. Isn't that beautiful? See, when others reject us, when they do wrong to us, when stubborn people really hurt us, we can look to our father and he says, I got this. I got this, trust me. I got this. It's beautiful, so beautiful to freeze us from the need for justice because we have a father who's gonna take care of us. So the first guarantee, the second guarantee, very briefly, Jesus in verses 17 through 19, he guarantees them of, of, of his present reign over Satan. He says, look, even, the, you know, they return, the 72 return, they say, even the demons are subject to us in, our na- in your name. And he says to them, I saw lightning fall like, I'm sorry, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Isn't that beautiful? He says, you know, because here's the thing, guys, behind every hardened community, guess who's lurking? It's the evil one. The, the enemy is not a certain political party. It's not a certain alternative culture. It's not who you think it is. 
the real enemy, there's one. And he's been defeated. The Apostle Paul says it so well in Ephesians 6. Our struggle is not against flesh and blood. Why does he have to say that? Because I think my struggle is against flesh and blood. I think my wife's against me. I think my kids are against me. I think everyone's against me. So stupid. And I say, oh, that's right. My struggle is not against flesh and blood. There is an evil one, and Jesus says, I've taken him out. Don't worry about it. Okay? So you focus on loving the stubborn, loving the hard-hardened. So let's just recap here. Jesus is sending him out as followers in these hardened communities. He instructs them to go out in, prayer, in, in pairs with prayers, without protection, without provision, to do what? To give peace, right? To offer welcome, to offer work, to offer wellness, to offer warnings, to give this, all these wonderful guarantees of triumph over the evil one, of future wrath. But he says, and this is the most important thing, he says to these, these followers, look, if you're going to, if you're going to serve, if you're going to love hardened communities, you've got to get God's grace. You've got to get God's grace. Go off, go offer peace, but you've got to get grace. Look in verse, look in there in verses 17. The disciples come back, they're high-fiving each other. They're so excited. They're like, they're like, Lord, even the demons submit to us. Isn't that awesome? Wouldn't that be great? I mean, you go out and have lunch with some non-Christian, suddenly they become demon-possessed, and you're like, hold on. Right? Wouldn't that be great? It's so exciting. They're, they're high-fiving. Wow, that's so cool. And Jesus is like, yeah, I am greater than Satan. He and I dueled in the desert, and I destroyed him. Right? And then he says in verse 20, however, do not rejoice that the spirits submit to you. But rejoice that your names are written in heaven. See, Jesus wants his disciples to ask, why is my name there? Why am I on the list? Who invited me? I'm sure there's someone out there saying, who invited that guy, right? Why am I on the list? Is it because my heart wasn't hardened? Is it because I was better than anyone in that stubborn community? Or is it exclusively because of God's grace? It goes on in verses 21 and 22. He speaks of how Jesus bursts into joy, full of, full of the Holy Spirit. And he says, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you have hidden these things from all the wise and the learned, and you have revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for this is what you were pleased to do. And then he goes on to say, why was this revealed? It was revealed to you only. Why? Because the Son chose to reveal. Got it? Why are you a Christian? Why am I a Christian? Only because of God's grace. And no other reason. There's, there's no, as I mentioned last night, there's no room for superiority. Why am I living at the time and place that I am? Why have I been given the chance to benefit from the spiritual riches of my place in history? We learn from verses 24, 23 and 24. It's only because of his grace. Do I get that? Do I understand that I, I, mean, I do not deserve to be invited? And why was I invited? Why were you invited? Because he was undeservedly excluded. Why does the Father know me? Because the Son made him known to me. How is it that I am, I am undeservedly at the right place at the right time? Because Jesus was undeservedly at the wrong place at the wrong time. That's grace. It's amazingly unfair. And if we're going to bring about change to our hardened communities, we've got to be able to look at them and say, you know what? I'm no different. I'm no different. See, Jesus 
was willing to be treated so unfairly that you and I, so that you and I would never be treated fairly, so that you and I might never treat others fairly, giving tit for tat, so that we might treat them with grace. Isn't that beautiful? What a a beautiful idea that as we receive God's grace, he's never gonna treat me as I deserve, therefore I'm never gonna treat others, the hard-hearted and the stubborn, as they deserve. I treat them with the beauty of his grace. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, Father, there is nothing greater than our fear that you will not provide, our fear that you will not protect, our fear that you do not know what you are doing. There is nothing greater than our pride that would say that we deserve, that we are better. Father, there is nothing greater than these things that will keep us from the mission that you have given us, the adventure, the joy of being a part of what you are doing. So Father, we ask that you would slay these things. Would you put to death our fear? Would you put to death our pride? And maybe you enable us to crawl under the rock with those who are hurting, to live in difficult relationships with those whose hearts are hardened, to go out into the world, to to come together in prayer, to go out together to give peace, welcoming people who make us feel so uncomfortable into our homes, coming alongside, giving work to others, but being willing to simply offer wellness and life through ministries of mercy and care and medicine, Father, Father, being bold enough to offer words of warning to those who are living close to the edge. Oh, Father, please, may we give peace and may we get your grace. May we be in awe that Jesus was willing to be treated never as he deserved, that we might never be treated as we deserve. Father, we love you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.